Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's get uh, right into the word here. Cause past couple weeks, Pastor Chad and Mike have both been so uh, quick with messages. I don't want to be the guy who keeps us here until one o'clock. So, which may still happen. So, Matthew nineteen is where we're going to be at, starting in verse sixteen. It says just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, "Teacher, what good thing must I do to?" To get eternal life, and uh, it's a great question. And he says, "Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments." The man inquired, "Which ones?" And Jesus replied, "You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself." Now, obviously, you're going to realize this man was not at the Sermon of the Mount because if he would have been there during Matthew 5 through 7, he would have realized there's a lot more to that what he just said, right? So the man replies, all these I have kept, even though, like I said, if he really knew what Jesus was telling him, he would have realized he had not kept them. And he said, what do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, Go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And when Jesus, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And uh, I want to pray before we go through uh, more of this. So, Father God, right now I ask that you would just speak to us today, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, God, that I would step out of your way and uh, you would just speak to all of us, God, that your words would come out, Lord, and that you would, uh, you would help us to receive what you have for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is one of those messages that... I go through a lot of this stuff every year, and it's one of those messages that hits me every time, and later on I'll share to you how to hit me today, literally. But this young ruler, this young man, he's rich, he's got a lot of stuff, and he thought he was doing everything right until Jesus asked him to get rid of the one thing that was holding him back. And he said it's hard for a rich man to make it in. And, and we understand, as you know, great Christians 2,000 years later, that it didn't just mean wealth, but there's, it's anything that we're rich in that can be holding us back. And, and today I want to talk about these very things because it wasn't necessarily wealth that was holding this man back. It was actually a lot of other things. It was a heart issue, not just his money. It was either he didn't trust God or he had a lot of greed or he had uh, he was selfish or maybe he had all of them, right? It was like if he had any of those other, like didn't have the greed or if he had trust for Jesus or anything else, the money wouldn't have been the issue. The problem's always what's at the heart, right? There's a lot of people who are like, man, I struggle with pornography, but it's not necessarily pornography, it's your problem. It's a heart issue or something deep, deeper that, that is an effect on you, right? So there's always these struggles we have that are the outward uh, fruit of what's actually in our heart. And this man had the fruit of his heart was the problem, but actually it was a deeper issue and it was, it was a heart issue, Right? Then the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and asked, who can be saved? 
And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We have to remember that. It's not because of what we do, it's because of who God is and what God does that any of it is possible. And sometimes we get distracted by that. We struggle with our works and we're trying to do everything right. And I appreciated Pastor Chad last week coming up and speaking, telling us that, you know, that sometimes we, uh, we keep score wrong, he said, and sometimes we, we have an idea of what looks like success and, and none of that's successful. What's actually successful is following God and honoring Him and doing what we're supposed to be doing. Peter answered him and he said, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And I, that's the heart. That's it. We have left everything to follow you. Now, mind you, Peter was still married. Peter still took care of his family. Peter did all that he was supposed to still do. But he had left his old life. He left all that stuff to follow Jesus, right? And he dedicated everything to Jesus. Jesus didn't tell him to leave his wife. But he left his own mindset of that being the most important thing. So that's what he's talking about here. And he said, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, on everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or wives, or children, fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. I bet that rich young ruler would have loved to hear that before he made his decision of walking away. But he walked away. To think that if he would have got rid of everything, Jesus said there's going to be a hundred times more for you. Today I want to look at these things in our lives that, uh, that maybe we're not willing to let go of. And Mike talked a couple weeks ago about faith, hope, and love. And, and it's all centered right there in that love. Because love is not just an emotion. Love is actually action. So... We're going to look at these things, and before we get too far into that, I'm going to go to John 16 at the beginning of it, because I think it's very important that sometimes we get a message in church, and we beat ourselves up, and we think like, oh, I just didn't make it, and you're right, you didn't make it. Like, But at the beginning of that, or at the end of that scripture, Jesus says it's all possible through God, so I want to read John 16, so we can get real excited before we get our toes stepped on. So it, uh, so John 16 says, All this I have told you so that you, uh, you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues. In fact, in the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. You, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when your time, their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you have asked, where are you going? So this is right before he's about to die and he's about to go to heaven. And he's saying, hey, I'm about to go to the one who sent me here. And he's saying, but none of you guys asked me, you know, none of you guys asked me, where are you going? 
all they're thinking about is, oh man, our plan isn't working out the way we wanted it to. Like this, what do you mean you're going to leave us, right? So their heart wasn't for his will or his plan or what he's doing. Like they didn't even ask, like, what's going on here? Instead, they just got sad, which we often do whenever God's plan doesn't look the way we want. Instead, we get distracted and we're like, oh man, this is horrible. We forget to move forward and press on. And he goes on and he says, rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things to you. And some of you are filled with grief because things aren't looking the way you want them to look. That's where the disciples were. That's where these apostles were. Things weren't looking the way they wanted. And they knew that Jesus was about to die and they were grieving already. Instead of focusing on, wait a minute, there's got to be something here. What am I missing? They were grieving. They said, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the good thing. This is the good part that we have to remember. God is convincing us. The Holy Spirit is convincing us about sin, the uh, wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not know we were wrong. We would have never knew this whole sin thing. We just went through what we always went through, and we did it, and we never thought about it. The Holy Spirit came, and he convinced us that we were not right with God. Right? He convinced us that we were in sin. He convinced us that we needed Jesus. And it says, about righteousness, righteousness because I am going to the Father. So we're not only convinced that we weren't right, but we're also convinced that he went to the Father and made it right for us now. So now we're right with Christ because we realized we were sinners and we needed Jesus. These are things we've got to remember before every message. Jesus died for us and he made us right with, with God. That's something we should go with. There's nothing to grieve about in that. Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. That means all the price had been paid. See, he's telling us the Holy Spirit is going to convince us of that. That sin has been paid for. We're right with the Father. Now he is in heaven, and guess what? We get to be there right with him. And if you are saved, that should always be on your heart and on your mind, and you should walk convinced of that, and you don't have to grieve. Instead, you can rejoice. You can be excited, right? So as we go through and we step on toes this morning, you can be excited for that, right? The, the things that we teach on Sunday are not to, to make you feel like you're not right with God, if you are right with God. The things we teach on Sunday are to help us prepare to go out into the world and be better representations of Christ, right? To share our witness, to, to minister to others, to, to show love, right? But sometimes we get so distracted by things, just like that rich young ruler, sometimes we're so focused on uh, one thing that we lack or one thing we're stuck on and we can't move forward or we can't follow Christ. So I'm going to share a scripture Mike shared a couple weeks ago before I get really into this, and it was First John uh, 2, verse 3. Uh, it's the start of it. It says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That's always one of those that, as Christians, we should always pay attention to. Are we keeping God's command? 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. I used to have an aunt that always, always spoke that to me from the time I was a kid on up. And uh, I never quite understood why she always said, you're a liar, and the truth ain't in you. Until after I got older, I realized I don't think she knew it. <laughs> I think she just liked saying it, but whenever you are living in sin and whenever you're not looking the way Christ is looking, you really are a liar and the truth ain't in you. But if anyone obeys this, his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And that's the goal. When we leave out of this place, people should see Jesus in us. We should be walking around like Jesus was. And if you want to realize if you're walking like Jesus was, just look at your witness to people around you all the time. Election day is in two days. If you want to find out where your heart is, if you look like Jesus, just think about election time right now. If I mention the name of Donald Trump, what's your mind think of? Or if I mention the name of Joe Biden, what does your mind think of? Where does your heart go? Right? Jesus would have loved them both. Jesus didn't get distracted by the politics of the world. Or maybe, maybe there's some other person that whenever we mention their name, it's where your heart goes to in that time period. And do you show Jesus everywhere you go? I would like to think, and I'm probably wrong, but that anywhere I would go, people would recognize Jesus and me. And that's the way we should be living our lives. We should be living in a, in a way that we don't think we have all the commandments done, so we're good, but instead, everybody should always see Jesus in our lives. It says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth, it, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in darkness. I go back to politicians. I go back to the people around you, the people that you see on a daily basis. Are you showing them love? And oftentimes we think we're showing people hate only whenever we're being hateful. But anytime we're not showing love, we're actually showing hate. Right? Anytime you're not in the light, it's dark. If we shut all these lights off in here, it's going to be really dark. And that's what we have to remember, that when we're around our brothers and sisters, if there's no light coming out, all they see is darkness. They see it's just like everybody else or like the world, and we just blend in. Right? It says, but anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Then it goes, I am writing to you, dear children, so those in here, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. In your Bible, there's probably a separation in, in those uh, scriptures there of 11 and 12, but I think it's important to remember that he's still pointing out that your sins have been forgiven. But he's trying to tell us that we need to be living in love because we've been forgiven. So it's not a stop there and he's like, all oh, you guys are going to hell. No, he said, no, you guys have been forgiven. 
So if we're going to talk about love, if you looked at Matthew 22, and Mike talked about this the other week, was the most important thing we can ever do, as Jesus said, to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our brothers and our sisters ourselves, or love our neighbors, right? These are, uh, this is something he wrote to the Pharisees right after he had to put the Sadducees in, in line because Sadducees were uh, trying to trip him up and he just pretty much owned them on it. Now the Pharisees were trying to trip him up and he comes in and he says this, still love your, uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, so Mike had went through 1 Corinthians 13 the other week, and I'm going to go back to it again because I thought he did a great job of pointing out the importance of faith, hope, and love, and love being the greatest of these. But if we're not going to be like the young ruler, our heart's got to be grounded in love. That rich young ruler had a heart problem because he didn't have love. He did. He had love for money. That was what was distracting him. But every year I have to go through 1 Corinthians 13 two or three times a year to get my heart refocused on where I'm wrong. And that's what I want to do today. I want us to leave here today understanding why the greatest is love. Right? And how that love looks. It's a very practical application. Love Love ain't just emotion. Love's not just showing up and be like, oh, I love Jesus. No, actually, if Jesus said if you love him, it shows. So we're going we're gonna to look through the scripture in the 1 Corinthians 13 based on fully loving God and then loving our neighbors. And it was just a couple months ago at men's group, John had uh, led the devotion, and it was about loving your neighbors as yourself. And one of the things we come to, and he was pointing out, like, you know, that's not an easy task to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're truly loving your neighbor as yourself, then what you would do for yourself should also be what you would do for your neighbor. In the aspect of he had a neighbor who was uh, having a problem. There was a, a company that was ripping the guy off. And John told him, and he could have just left it at that, Right? But he realized the guy couldn't get it fixed on his own, so he's like, oh. So he went the extra mile and worked hard to make sure he got that taken care of for the man. A lot of times we think it's loving just to point out there's an issue. But if it was your problem, you would fix it. You would do whatever it needed to get fixed, right? And that's part of loving your neighbor. Doing whatever is needed to help them out. That's loving your neighbor. It's going that extra mile. Because... If you would do it for yourself, you should be able to do it for others. So, 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know what? I see a lot of these. I see a lot of uh, resounding gongs. I see, I, you hear a lot of people speaking all the time. It's just noise. right? And they're trying to tell you what you should be doing right, and how they're right, and you're wrong. You just hear noise. You're like, there's no love in that. You look at uh, Facebook, there's nothing but gong. That's all you hear. So if I have gifts of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. This tells you your works on your own are nothing. If I give it all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, but I 
that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And sometimes you read these and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You're not doing it in love. But sometimes we think we're doing it in love. We're not. And we're going to get into those more, but sometimes our, our motives are actually selfish. Sometimes our motives are for ourselves and not for other people. So I'm going to go through each one of these and I want you to think about them. Uh, number one being love is patient. This may be the hardest one. I failed on this this morning. I want to first start by talking about our patience with God. A lot of times we think we, we love God and everything like that, but how many of us, and don't raise your hands, I'll, I'll be the only one to raise my hand because I'm, I'm going to hit every one of them I ask you and they're all going to affect me, but how often are you impatient with God? How many, how many times do we, we pray for something or we, we ask God for vision or we ask this or that or the other and you're like, I've been asking God and I got nothing. Or the Lord hasn't been any, saying anything so I gave up. Or, oh yeah, I used to do that but it just didn't happen. How many times do we lose patience with what God's trying to do or what he's, he's saying or whatever it is? We all know what patience is. None of us want it. But we all know what it is. Most of us are like, man, I wish I'd, that wasn't part of love. But it's the first one he covered. And it says, are you patient with people? I remember years ago, Pastor Oz standing up here singing the J.G. Wentworth uh, song, you know, uh, about the, I want my money and I want it now, and however that jingle went. And that always made so much sense to me, because that's where we're at a lot of times. Is we want instant gratification. Right. We want change now. We want whatever it is. We're in a society that I shouldn't have to wait. But what about with your loved ones or with your friends or your co-workers? And you're like, man, I wish it would just happen. And you lose patience with them. You get aggravated. Or maybe you're doing something around the house. Or, or you're like me and you're doing something in the church here this morning. And, and uh, people had moved some stuff around. I'm getting impatient trying to fix it. And so I'm doing stuff unsafely because I'm impatient. I fall, I cut my shirt, and I cut my arm up. I hit my head because I'm impatient. Right after, I'm, I'm about to preach this message, and I'm still impatient. Right? It's painful to be impatient. Not only for me, but for anybody and those you affect. Right? So whenever you're at home, and you just wish, or maybe you're not even home, maybe you have kids that are grown up, or maybe you have friends that just aren't where you want them to be or there are people you've been praying for and you're trying to give up on them and you're not patient, that's that instant gratification you're looking for. But we're told love is patient. So if we truly, truly love somebody, we'll be patient with them. Right? We'll show them that love. When somebody can be patient with you and you're, you keep failing over and over and somebody's like, it's okay, we'll get through this. It's okay, I love you. That does a lot more than people saying, why do you always mess up? What is your problem? And we all snap sometimes when we make mistakes, but people don't need that. Everybody already knows when they're messing up, especially if they're saved. You know, Scripture tells us that uh, Mike shared it the other week. I'm, I'm covering a lot of what he covered. And Scripture tells us that they'll know us by our love for one another. Right? And if we can't even demonstrate this part of love, we failed right away. 
But if they're going to know us by our love for one another and Christians can't even love one another, how are we going to love everybody else? Who would want to be a part of a place that there's no love? If we don't look different than the world, as a lot of people outside of the church will say, the church don't look any different. And a lot of them don't because they're not acting any different. But when you walk in these walls, first thing we should do is be loving everybody. We should be taking care of each other. We should be patient with one another. We should even be checking on each other. Because we should look different than everywhere else. And don't get me wrong. I love this church. and I think we have, I'm probably biased, but I think we have some of the most loving people in the world here. But, but there's always things we can work on. It says, love is kind. And this is one of them. Sometimes I read this and I'm like, I'm pretty kind. I think I'm all right in this aspect. Unless you know my true nature and you're kind of like, no, actually, you're probably a jerk. But when you think of love as kind and you think about loving God first and you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever been unkind to God. But as I was praying about this one, how kind are we really to God that, that we don't make time for Him? We, are, we, we only speak to Him when it's convenient to us. We only hang out with Him when it's convenient to us. We don't even usually go out of our way for him. We usually, usually there's a reason why we're talking to God. It's not just because we love him. That's not very kind if we're only doing it for selfish motive. Kindness means you're doing it because you love him. Kindness means that you just want to be kind to him. But how often are we actually kind to God? I mean, literally, if you think about it, what kind of good friend are we to God? I don't know how kind I've ever am to God. I, it's something you always have to remember is, man, I need to be more kind to God. How do I treat him? Right? We, we often treat him with fear. We also often treat him with respect. But I don't know if we always treat him with kindness. And, and if we're thinking about kindness, how do we treat people who think differently than us? How do we treat people who are maybe not Christians or maybe who are people who are struggling or maybe... How do we treat homosexuals, transgenders? How do we treat politicians? How do we treat all these people with different thought processes than we have? How do we treat them? Right? Are we kind to them? I'm not saying do we accept everything they're doing wrong. I'm asking if we're kind to them. How nice are we to people who are different than we are? That's something we have to remember. If we are going to love God first and love our neighbor, we have to be kind at all times. And that is a tough one because sometimes you just want to choke somebody. It does not envy. Now this may be one that we look at with God and we're like, ha, I don't envy God. I don't want that job. It's the hardest job in the world. But how many times do you want your own way? How many times do you want to take charge? How many times do you not want to follow his plan, but you want your own plan? We're envious oftentimes of his authority. We're often envious of what he's supposed to be doing. We're often envious of that will of his that we want to be in charge. How often do you even want to take charge of somebody else's life because they're not living the way God would have them do it? 
You're trying to play God in their life because we're envious of that position without even thinking about it. You're like, I don't know if that's envy. It's coveting. It's envious. It's, we don't always treat God the way we should. We often want to be the gods of our own lives and the gods of other people's lives. It's an envy. And you know if you struggle with envy with other people. You know that if you want to... Like, it's one thing to inspire to, to learn from people, to, to be like someone, or to, to even, you know, use them for a guidance of where you want to go. But when you want to start having what they have, you start getting jealous of uh, where they're at in life, and you want to be there, you're jealous of the stuff they have, you're starting to have envy in your heart for what they have and for other people. And, uh, you know if you have the envy for people. That's one that I think most of us are really good with the envy of others, but we forget about the envy of God. It does not boast. I'm a very boastful person, so this one hits hard. And I'm going to share what the uh, biblical meaning for boasting is, because sometimes we forget this. It means to, to brag, to esteem oneself, to make an ostentatious display and speech of one's own worth, property, or actions. Sometimes we ain't so boastful next necessarily of, of who we are, but sometimes of the stuff we have. Or sometimes maybe we're boastful of our, our actions. And, and uh, we're real quick to point out to people. And sometimes we, we word it in a way that it sounds like you're trying to, you know, be humble about it, but you're, you're actually boasting. And uh, as Christians, it happens a lot. Sometimes we boast of what God does, but we put the we take credit for it as we're doing it. I'm like, man, God used me to do this, and it was awesome. And we're we're sitting here and we're boasting, and that it's not bad to give God glory for what He does. It's bad whenever you make your you lift yourself high in it. Right? We should always lift Him high. We shouldn't be boasting what we do. We always boast of what God's doing. Right? And if you're ever sharing anything to try to make yourself look better than somebody else, you're boasting. Love is not proud. I know for men this is a huge one, but it's huge for women too. But as men, there's oftentimes pride that we feel like we should have it all together and our pride won't let us let go of stuff. Sometimes we can't even... Let God have something because we're so proud that we should have it together or, or we should be controlling something or whatever it is. Pride is one of the biggest issues for mankind. That's why it's the pride of life and, and all that that we struggle with. But when our pride gets in the way of showing God love or giving something over to God or trusting God, whatever that pride issue we have, as humans, we have so many, especially in America, because in America you can do it all yourself, right? You can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You should have it all figured out, and it's hard to let it go because as a man, you should have it figured out, and you should be tough, and you should be this. And, and whenever you fail, you're like, oh, I don't want people to tear me down, or I don't want them to see that I'm weak, or... I don't want them to know I'm still struggling with this, or I think I should be better than what I am right now. And we get this pride stuff that we just can't let go of, of things because we don't want people to see it, not even God. 
If your pride keeps you from being able to get into God's presence with something, you'll never be able to let go of the, the people. And that's, some of us are filled with so much pride we can't move. I see it on Sunday mornings in people's faces sometimes whenever when their heart's aching and this altar gets open and their pride won't let them step out of where they're at because they don't want people to know they are struggling. But until you can let go of that pride and step forward and say, I am struggling. And let me tell you, every one of us are struggling. Because God didn't call a perfect person. He called people who needed him and had reliance on him. If you're having a problem and you're thinking like, man, I feel like I should be doing more stuff, like I feel like I should have more of a calling in my life, this might be something holding you back. The fact that you won't let go of stuff and give it over to God. It does not dishonor others. Well, this is a kick too. Dishonor means to disgrace, to bring shame on, to stain the character of, to lessen the reputation of, to treat with indignity. I want to reread those, and I want you to think about your relationship with God, right? It says, Dishonor is to disgrace, to bring shame on, to stain the character of, to lessen the reputation of, to treat with indignity. So when people see you as a Christian, a follower of God, do we ever dishonor him? Do we ever bring stain to his name? Do we ever bring, do we ever uh, treat his name with indignity? Or do we lessen his reputation? Do people ever look at us and say, oh my goodness, I don't want any part of that? Right? Oftentimes, as followers of God, I mean, we're the ones dishonoring him. We're not bringing honor to his name. We're not glorifying him. We should live in a way that people want to have what we have. They want to be where we're at. That, that we bring such an honor and a glory to God's name that they're like, wow, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. There should be such honor in that. Same thing with honor your mother and your father. People are often like, what if I didn't have a dad? Well, live in a way that you know, you're bringing honor to him anyway. That your life is a blessing. right? We should bless God. We should be honoring to him. This is one of those things that uh, when you think about tearing down people's character or lessening who they are, how many times can you talk about maybe a boss, maybe maybe it's somebody, a leader in a church, maybe, maybe it's one of these, President Trump or Joe Biden, that you would tear down his name, that you would belittle their character. And oftentimes you're like, well, I just want people to know that they're wrong. Do you ever let people know how much you love those people? Do you ever lift them up truly in prayer because you care about them? We're going to have an election on Tuesday, and somebody's going to get elected. It's going to be either President Trump or it's going to be Joe Biden. And I'm going to rejoice either way because it's God's will. I'm going to rejoice, and I'm going to pray for that person. And I hope everybody will do that. I hope we don't tear them down. I hope we don't go on Facebook and say, this is stupid. I don't know why this is. Or I hope we don't go in there and be like, yay, we won. You guys lost. You, you are horrible. We don't do that because we're Christians. We honor people. Right? 
It's okay to point out like, hey guys, we can't support abortion. It's okay to say we can't support this. But when you start attacking people, that's dishonor. There's no love in that. We need to show love at all times, no matter who it is. Doesn't matter who it is. Imagine if we did that, if we stopped being like everybody else and attacking people and tearing people down, and that we walk in somewhere and people are talking politics and we're like, man, God got a plan for both of those people. I love them both. I don't agree with both of them, but man, I'm just glad God's put them where he wants them. What if we acted in that way? Don't you think people would look at us differently? Don't you think it would be more changing an atmosphere instead of fueling an atmosphere? And we have to do that. When you bring honor to people and situations, you actually change the, the place you're at. You start changing people. Love is not self-seeking. On the God part of this, just think about your prayers. The way you pray is it more self-seeking than God-seeking. Are you more looking at getting what you want done they are being in the will of God. Are your prayers more selfishly motivated? Sometimes you do pray, we pray and we're like, God, I just bless this, Lord. I want to honor you with it. And if we look at how Jesus prayed, Jesus said, Father, if possible, take this cup from my hand, but your will, not mine. Right? He didn't want to go get murdered. He didn't want to go hang on the cross. And he asked him, he said, hey, if I don't have to do it, Lord, Father, just... Don't do it, but it's your will I want. I'll do whatever you ask. That's the way our prayers should be. It should never be like, man, God, I need a new car. Could you just provide the funds for that car? Instead, you could pray like, Lord, I'm having issues with this car. I don't know what you're doing in this, but I want your will. But Lord, I, if you could bless me with a car, I'd love it. But I'm going to honor you either way. I'm going to love you no matter what. I want your will to be done. I don't know what you're doing in this, but I know you're going to do something good. When our prayers change for God's will, other than selfish need, it'll change everything. It'll change our hearts. It'll change, your, you'll be far less let down. Whenever you're walking around, be like, I can't believe God didn't give me a new car. Instead, you're like, man, I can't believe what God did in all that. I had a chance to actually watch what he did, and it was awesome. We needed a new air conditioning. We wanted the money for it. We were praying, God, give us some money for this AC. Give us some money for this AC. And then we changed our prayer. Lord, do something amazing. We're in a prayer group, and Bob Taylor's like, God, I know you have something great. You're going to do something awesome, and we're going to praise you in it. And then we get one for free. Because God didn't want us to get the money to pay for it. Instead, he wanted to be blessed with it. He wanted to bless it. It was his will... We get to praise him more than we ever did praise him about this AC than if we had the money to pay for it. And sometimes he wants to bless you with the money to pay for stuff to bless other people. But our prayers shouldn't be so specific that we take God's will out of it. Right? Do you speak to people hoping that they will become the way you want them to? Or do you truly want the best for them? So in our relationships... Are relationships more self-seeking or are they wanting God's will in that person's life? Sometimes we're giving people advice, wanting them to be more like what we think they should be like than what God's calling them to be like. 
And if we're praying for people and we're loving people, we're completely out of that. When I start talking to Keevan, I'm not, I'm not quickly being like, well, this is what I think, or this is what I want for you, or this is how I would do it. I mean, people, when somebody says something, they're like, hey, no way I would have done that. Right? Immediately, it goes right to you. When you start talking to people, it's always right back to you. Well, this is what I did, or this is what I would have done. And real quickly, it goes right back to ourselves. Because oftentimes, that's the one thing always on our mind is ourselves. But instead, if I sit down with somebody and you're like, this is what I'm going through, I'm like, let's pray and figure out what God has in that. I, I just want to see something good in this. And we stop making it about us, and we make it about them and God, it's going to change something. Right? They don't walk away feeling condemned either or confused or anything else. I didn't feel like that's what God was telling me, but I guess maybe I need to look into that. Right? It should always be for that person's betterment, not for ours. Love is not easily angered. I don't think I necessarily have to point this one out to you too much. You know if you're easily angered. But I will say, can you watch a commercial on TV without getting angered? Can you talk to your kids without being angry? Can you talk with somebody with different political views? Can you even talk with somebody with different religious views without getting angry? And I'm not talking about righteous anger. Righteous anger is whenever people are not acting in God's will. Most people you're going to deal with are not in God's will anyway. Jesus had righteous anger, and if we're living like Jesus and loving like Jesus, that's all that should be coming out of us is righteous anger. And you'll know if it's righteous by the, the way you feel inside. But some of us can't talk to certain people without just getting mad. Some people can't some people can't get on Facebook without getting mad. Some people can't do anything without getting mad. Some people just walk around angry because they're just angry. But this is saying, are you not easily angered? Doesn't mean you won't get angry. Doesn't mean you won't get mad, but it'll happen easily. It's huge. People with short wicks, people who get angry really easy, people usually avoid them. Nobody wants to be around somebody who's going to snap all the time. It's really hard to witness to somebody if they don't want to be near you. It keeps no records of wrongs. No records of wrongs. There's always a great, a great wedding scripture part here. No records of wrongs. I think most people have a Rolodex of wrongs, records of wrongs. And sometimes we're like, no, I don't do that. But how often can you point out what somebody's done wrong? Oh, yeah, I remember when they did this. I remember when they did that. This guy's this way, that person's this way, and we're always pointing out everything they did wrong. If I name different names, I can sit up here and probably name off 20 names and every one of you could think about that person. And you'd probably think more about the wrong that you know about them than you do the right. Because that's what we do. And it's okay to be cautious that people may do things wrong. But if when you think about them, all you're thinking about is the wrong in them or how wrong they are and how they're not right, and you're kept record of the wrong. 
It should not be your first thought of anybody is how wrong they are or what they've done wrong. Instead, maybe somebody I know who's done a lot of wrong, instead when I go up to them and I say, hey, man, I really appreciate this about you, and I start complimenting them on the good stuff they're doing, and I start pointing out the, the positive parts of their lives, then I've earned the respect to help them along with their wrongs. But if all I care about is what, how wrong they are, I have no reason to be talking to those people until I can get over that and pray about it and let God heal that in my life. But some of us only see people as wrong. There's no love in that. If you can't see people the way Jesus sees them, then that's a problem with you, not with that person. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We got this one. We got this one because the world is evil, and we get to delight in the truth because we're Christians. And there's a quote from John MacArthur I heard a couple years ago that I absolutely love. It says, we should not be entertained by which Christ died for. And we say that we do not delight in, in evil, but how entertained are we by sinful things that we see on TV, on the internet, in music, in life? How often have we watched something that brought joy to us that Jesus had to die for? And you're like, well, it's just a movie. It's not real. Still depicting wrongdoings. How often are there things like that in our lives? How often do we find that, that uh, joy even in our lives of the wrong that we do and we try to justify it by saying, eh, you know, it ain't that bad or uh, other people do it or whatever your, your logic is in it. But if we are rejoicing in anything that does not line up with truth or line up with God or with Jesus where he's at, we should not be delighting in it. If it does not bring pleasure, if it does not honor or bring glory to God, we need no part of it. And I know what the argument is there. People are like, that's legalism. That's what that's called. That's legalism. And it's a word that we like to throw around to, to make it feel like we're okay with where we're at. No, I'm not legalistic. I'm loving. And I will tell you the difference between legalism and love. Legalism is used to hold you down. Legalism is something that you're, you're following the rules because you have to follow the rules. Love is saying, I want no part of that because all I want is Christ. It's a big difference. When you're operating out of love, you're doing it out of your heart. When you're operating out of legalism, you're doing it because you have to. But if I truly love Jesus, I truly love God, and I want to be honoring the God... I, will, I wouldn't sit around and say, is this that bad? Can I do this? Can I do that? Instead, I'd be like, God, I'll get rid of it. I'll, I'll let go of everything for you. Show me what you want me to do. Show me how to love you. Right? It should no longer be about what I can get away with. It should be about what I can give to God and how I can honor him and live the way he wants me to live. We can't delight in evil. When other people see us delighting in that, and as, as John MacArthur said, when we are being entertained by the things that Jesus died for, 
When other people see that, they think it's okay. That's not loving. That's not loving God and that's not loving people. They should see us different. Our actions should lead them to Christ, not to the way the world's leading. We should always look different. That's loving. And I know you're saying, you're like, well, that's a true sacrifice. That's what Jesus said. Get rid of it. Paul said, work out your salvation. He's a part of those things of working that out. The day you're saved, you don't get rid of everything, but God should be doing a new thing in you at all times, and you should be letting go of stuff. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I want no part of this, I'm sorry, but it's part of love. It's in the Scripture. Take it up with God. He put it there. Love always protects. Now, we don't necessarily need to protect God, right? Like He is God. He doesn't need me to go out and beat everybody up for him because they really needed to. He can take care of it. But am I protecting my relationship with God? Am I, can, am I protecting his name? Am I protecting who he is in my life? There's a lot of things with God I don't necessarily protect because he's God. But I'm not very protective of him if I'm not looking like him. And if, I, if people don't see my relationship as something I guard as safely, right? So... The main way we can protect God ourselves is by protecting that relationship we have with it. You see it with the armor of God and all that, but that relationship is highly important for others to see. It needs to be protected. And what about protecting other people? You know, I'd already shared about the loving your neighbor and how we should be treating our neighbor in the same way that we would treat ourselves. So if my neighbor is homeless... I should be like I can't provide that person with everything, but I should not be able to rest until I can help my neighbor get taken care of, right? You don't have to bring them into your home. There's a lot of stuff in this world to help homeless people out with if your neighbor and God puts it on your heart to love your neighbor. There are so many things out there you can help with, and you're like, well, I don't have time for that. Well, then you're not very loving. Love's never been told. It, it, God never said it's going to be easy. And he never said do it when it's convenient. We're to look like him at all the times. First John said it. You know, we should look just like Jesus. We should walk just like Jesus. And what about even those people that are always being tore down, those people who think different than us, that Christians are like, I don't like that, or this person's horrible? Do we protect that? Do we ever step up and like, hey, we shouldn't say that stuff? Or when you walk in a room and people are arguing about something, are you protecting them? Like, hey, don't do that. Right? Love, love should always protect at all times. Not just like, I'm not going to let you die. That's the easy thing. You know, I'm going to step in front of this dog so he don't eat you. That's easy. But what about protecting people's character, protecting their life, protecting their morals? Whatever it takes to be protecting, you know if you're doing it. We should be protecting. This one must be important because I circled it. And it says, love always trusts. That's what that rich young ruler felt. He didn't trust Jesus when Jesus told him what he needed to do. A person who trusted Jesus would have said, all right, I want to do it, because Jesus told me to, and I know it's right. But we don't always trust God. We like to think we do, but if we truly trusted God, we'd say yes and move right in. Yes and amen, yes and amen. 
Yes, I'll let go of that. We wouldn't be trying to make excuses for anything. We would not try to argue with it. We would just trust him. When he tells me to do something, I'm going to do it because I trust him. Even whatever the things, like whenever you are praying, you're like, God, I'm giving this to you. I need your help. Please take this over. You know, and the thing we often share is like whenever you come to the altar and you lay something at the altar and you're like, God, I'm giving it to you. And then when you get up, you take half of it back with you because you're like, I'm going to still go home and struggle with this. I'm still going to go home and worry about this. I'm going to still try to fix this myself instead of just leaving it there and trusting him to do it. There's nothing more freeing than whenever you can lay your burdens at the altar and leave them and trust God will take care of it. Nothing more freeing than that. If we love him, we can do that. And he loves us enough that he's going to take care of it. He loves perfectly. And I'm going to talk about a few things here that we need to work, think about with trust. And, and some of them Pastor Chad shared last week. But what about in our finances? How easy is it for us to trust God in our finances? And I'm, I'm going to share a little testimony, and it ain't about me because... Years ago, I prayed to God, and I said, hey, you can have my money. I'm not very good with it, so I'll do whatever you want, and I won't worry about it, and I haven't since I did that, and he always takes care of me. Sometimes I look at my bank account, and I'm like, oh, I thought I had more money than that. Sometimes I look in there, and I'm like, oh, I have more than I thought, right? And that's the way it works when you trust him, but there's a man who, who I've known for years, and he ain't around here, so it ain't going to embarrass anybody, and I'm not going to share his name. But he came to me and he said, hey, we've been struggling, you know, my job's not where it used to be right now, my finances, you know, I work on, you know, whatever I want, what I'm doing, like he got paid by the jobs he did, and he wasn't getting very many jobs, and his wife had a job, but, you know, all their bills were set up by two incomes. So his wife was real scared about money, and he came to me and he said, hey, uh, I don't know what to do about tithing. It scares us to tithe. We may need that money. I said, well, I was like, I appreciate you asking me, but that ain't for me to decide. That's between you and God, your tithes are. But I will say, if you look at Scripture and you read Scripture, we're supposed to trust God with everything. And we're supposed to trust Him. And I don't think he really liked that answer necessarily. But when he asked Pastor Rod about it, and Pastor Rod said, look, man, between you and God... You know, there's a lot of ways to tithe. We make our offerings through uh, services, different things like that. And, and he made the decision, look, I just don't think I could tithe right now. And they fell further and further into struggles. And then he was just sitting there praying. He's like, I can't believe I don't trust God enough with my money. So he started tithing. He didn't tell me until later on. He starts tithing, Right? And nothing changed as far as work and all that, but he just starts noticing blessings where God's taking care of them more than they ever have because he starts trusting God in all that he's doing. And I know some of you guys have, I've heard lots of stories in here of times that you've done that where you just trusted God and he takes care of everything. But, but sometimes we get distracted with our finances that I can't trust God. I don't have the money to tithe. A lot of people will be like, you need to be a cheerful giver. Where tithing ain't giving, tithing is tithing. That's giving back to God what he's asked you to give back to him. He gave it to you in the first place, right? 
And Pastor Chad hates to talk about money. I don't because I think it's one of the worst things that we struggle with as Christians is trusting God with our finances. It is very important that this is one place you learn to trust God. Otherwise, it will always hold you down. Always. That's why it says money is the root to all kinds of evils. Because there's lots of ways that affect you. You can get greedy for it, or you can even get to the point to where you're so dependent on it, you don't know what to do. So you got to be protective of that. Your family. You can trust God with your family. Can you truly allow your kids to go out and, and trust that God will take care of them? Can you go out and you... Can you trust that whenever your family and you are together and you spend that time together with Him? You know, because a lot of families, their, their family time is not God time. It's just family time. Right? No, that's our time. Uh, God, you know, we'll go to church on Sunday and that'll be God's time. No. Trust God with your family. Put Him right in the center of your family and trust Him with it. See what He does. That's why it says, raise a child in the way they should go and they will return to it. If God's right at the center of that, of your family, He'll bless it. Make Him a key part of everything you do. Same thing with marriages. I share this a lot, but 98% of the couples who pray together daily and have God at the very center of their lives are successful. Only 2% get divorced. That's a lot different than everybody else. Even in the church. I think right now the divorce rate's almost 58% even in the church. Because God's not right at the center. We're not trusting Him in it. In our work, in our lives, in all of our struggles, think of the things that we can learn to trust Him in, that we can give over to Him in. Those things we can lay at the altar so God just, this is yours. Do what you want with it. And truly let Him have it. How much would that change our lives? How much would that change your kids' lives and your family's lives and your friends' lives to see that trust? When somebody comes up and they're like, oh, I just trust God in this, and they give me this great testimony, that blesses me when other people are trusting God. It encourages. And that's what our trust would do. It always hopes. I know we have a lot of hope in God and what He's going to do, but let me ask you, one way to know if your hope is in God is when you're in struggles, or maybe you're sick, or you're hurt, maybe you're depressed, or whatever it is, and you start to pray, you automatically hope that He's going to take care of it, or you start doubting. I don't know if He'll do this. I hope He does, but then I don't know, and, and doubt starts taking over. What if he has had hope and he left that doubt out of it? And if you start the doubt, say, God, take this doubt away from me. I want to have nothing but hope that you're going to take care of it. Now, don't put expectations on it. Just know that, hey, I trust you and I hope that you, you'll do this. But oftentimes, our first reaction to what God's going to do is that we doubt that he does that much. Instead, we should be hoping he does something huge. Pastor Chad's always talking about his vision for this church. And sometimes he's nervous to put it out there, but he's hoping God does it, right? And the way you know you have a God vision is if you can't do it on your own. And we just hope that he does it. Because he said he will. We have a lot of hope. I hope that when I die, I get saved, or I get to heaven. That's a hope, and I believe it, and I trust it. I don't doubt it one bit. 
because I trust him and I have hope in him. Hope always perseveres. I always thought like, yeah, it does get through everything, but I wanted to write this down. Persevere means to continue in a course of action even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. That means good or bad. Our love for God is persevering. And sometimes whenever stuff looks like it ain't going to work out right or it looks like it's done or whatever, we give up on it. We don't persevere. We don't press through. And love should always be persevering. Love should always press through. I always think about, uh, in this one, I always think about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. When Lazarus died, they never gave up hope. They never stopped persevering. He, he was dead. And they still knew, hey, my hope is still in you, Jesus. Take care of this. They never gave up. He was dead. And sometimes when things are dead, they have to die for God to teach you, persevere through it, keep going. If they would have gave up, and they were like, all right, he's dead, forget it, don't worry about going to talk to Jesus about it anymore. Jesus would have never been raised, or Lazarus may not have ever been raised from the dead because they gave up. But it's that perseverance. You can be on your deathbed and still be persevering. Your family can be persevering in faith, in love. It never gives up. Same thing in your relationships with one another. Sometimes we can look at marriage and think marriages don't always persevere, and that's an easy one to look at, right? Some of you guys have set your marriages up to where they won't fail, and you'll persevere through hard times, and you'll get through it. Some people haven't. But marriage is an easy one. What about friendships? How many of your friendships have persevered whenever hard times come, or you just write it off and you forget about it, and, and they're just no longer your friend? Or family members who have struggled differently than you have and you just wrote them off and it doesn't persevere. If we are loving people, our love perseveres. We're not saying it's okay what they're doing. Even the father in, in the uh, prodigal son story allowed the, the son to go out and make his own mistakes. The father didn't follow along with him and help him make the mistakes and stayed right there loving him, waiting for him, and he never turned his back for him. And he ran to him whenever he was ready to come to him. Sometimes we cut somebody off whenever they fail, whenever they're failing or whenever they're not the way we want them to be and our love doesn't persevere. When we go on, it says love never fails. God's love never fails, but ours should be the same. Now, we're going to fail a lot, but it doesn't mean we stop. We keep persevering. We pick it back up, right? We're going to fail people all the time. Just because you fell once don't mean you give up. We wouldn't be anywhere as a society if every time somebody fell, that's how you learn. Pastor Chad shared it here before. You don't become a good leader until you learn how to fail. If you can handle failure, and you will fail, you can grow from it. That's how you grow. The love part should never fail. It should always be there. It should always be growing. We should always be working on it. It's like God's love never fails us. Ours should not fail other people. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but we, when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 
and persevering. It's all going to be right. It's all going to be full. We're going to be full of love. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Guys, we can't continue to be children. We have to grow. We have to push forward. We have to mature. Some of us are still the way we were when we came to Christ. Some of us have went from babies to infants to children, and maybe even to teens and not made it past that, but we've got to keep growing. We're not children. It says, while I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And this is... This is right after he's talking about love. We should be putting away our childish disputes. We should be putting away our childish selfishness. We should be putting away our pride. And all these things that, that love is not should be gone in us. They should be gone. That's stuff you have when you're a child and when you're a new believer and all that. We are at a point now that where we're maturing. And the closer we get, the more we should be full in this. And we know we'll never be full because he says, you know, when he gets to heaven, he'll be full. Of we should be getting closer. We're preparing for the kingdom of heaven. We should be the most loving people in this world, and that ain't always the case. Sometimes you can talk to non-believers, and they're some of the most loving people in the world. They treat you better than Christians do. And that is sad that we can't be that good, that we can't learn to love like that. And as Mike said the other week, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Our lives should be so centered on love. Every day we should be focusing on loving God first and loving people. Fine, you can come on up. It, uh, I just don't want us to get so distracted by uh, the arguments of this world, the things this world does. We shouldn't look like anybody else. we got a lot of friends that aren't in church and and we should be inspiring them, and we should be the, the influence on them, not them on us. Right? Whenever I see people talk about politics, and they're always saying, I'm as guilty as anybody, and you're tearing down one of the candidates, and you're making them look bad, and you're belittling them, where's the love in that? Right? Why would anybody look at me any different whenever the person they believe is the right person, I'm tearing them down and hating them, instead of loving them? We can't do that. We can't act like everybody else. We're called to be different. We're, we're created to be different. And nobody will want to be a part of this kingdom of heaven if we don't look different. A lot of times churches want to, to look like the world so people want to be a part of their church. But why would they want to be a part of something they're already a part of? People want to see something different. They'll want to be a part of what we have here if we look different. And sometimes they're going to be like, oh, you're too weird. You know who they're going to go to whenever they're struggling? The weird person who looks different. Because you don't look like everybody else. And as we talk about love, and we talk about it here, it's that self-seeking thing. When you're sitting down with your friends, don't start pointing out all their wrongs. Don't start telling them how they need Jesus right away. 
Start showing them the love of Jesus and earn that trust to be able to speak into their life. Love earns the ability to speak into somebody's life. You don't have that you don't have that right until you earn it. Now there's times that you can go along with a brother or sister in the Lord and you have that right because they've already fulfilled Christ. And whenever you're out there in the world and people look different than us, stop judging. Pastor Chad said last week, you don't know who's a wheat and who's a tares. Yet sometimes we're trying to separate it ourselves. We're trying to do it on our own. We can't do that. It's not our job to judge people. It's not our job to point out who's right and who's wrong. It's our job to love those people and show them who Christ is, who will make them right. If I tell you all your wrongs and you change and you become start doing things right, you still don't know Jesus. Doesn't matter how right you are if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and that only happens through love. So I'm going to pray. If you need prayer, we'll be up here. Trust the Lord. Don't let your pride hold you back from prayer. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the great work you do for us and in us, Lord. God, I ask that you would just help us to be more like you, to love the way you ask us to love. Lord, help us to love you first. Help our hearts be completely devoted to you to love fully the way you've called us to love, Lord. Help us to love others, God. Lord, I pray right now that you'd be illuminating in our hearts, Lord, those things that we struggle with, Lord, those things that are holding us back, those things that keep us from loving you and loving others, Lord. Let us lay them down at your altar and trust you with them, Lord, that you'll begin doing a good work in them, that you'll change them, that you'll take care of it, Lord. Help us to love the way your son Jesus did. Holy Spirit, move mightily here. Father God, remind us first and foremost that we are saved and you love us. And I ask that you completely change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. doing it. 
He kept doing it. As he kept doing it, he, he stopped arguing as much with God. He just started truly feeling a love for this man. And he realized after a while that he was only doing it before to say he was doing what God was telling him to do, that he was loving this man. Right? He was doing it out of a selfish need, but as he was doing it more and more, God called him to do more and more and more and more. After a while, there was this genuine love. And in the end, he realized that from the beginning that the man he was loving never was struggling through this love. Only he was. The man was okay. He was all right. God wasn't doing a good work on that man. He was helping that man, but the good work was in that guy's heart that was loving and God began changing and transforming. And after that, he was able to go around and love people. And he wouldn't go anywhere without shoving, sharing the love of Christ with everybody. But it took God starting to use him to love his neighbor and for him to say yes every time God gave him that prompting to love his neighbor. And it was a struggle. But it changed his whole life. It did bless the man that he was helping, but it changed him. Oh. I want you to think about that. Sometimes when God's prompting you to love your neighbor, he might be trying to do something great for you. I'm going to close some prayer. You guys are free to go. You can stay and worship and do whatever you need to do. Just don't be quick to leave unless you're ready. So, Father God, thank you for today, Lord. I ask that you bless everybody in here. Speak to our hearts, God. Lord, help us stay with you and, and focused on you throughout our week. Let us not be distracted by the things of this world, Lord. Lord, we do lift our, our nation up to you in this election. God, we pray that your will be done. No matter how it looks afterwards, Lord, we're going to praise you the way we would if it happened the other way. The outcome, we're going to praise you. You know you're going to do a great work in it, God. We're going to glorify you. We're going to pray for those who are elected, God. We're going to love them in a way that we've never been able to love anybody before. God, let us not be distracted by getting our own way or in our own selfish needs, God. Let us be a part of your will and what you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.